Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore what we can do to treat our conditions to live more fulfilling lives. A friendly reminder that this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not medical advice. Today, our guest is Dr. Britt Harmon, a doctor of physical therapy who specializes in hypermobility and women's health. Dr. Britt works to help women to feel more empowered in their ability to create sustainable and obtainable shifts in their bodies and minds. Her background is in hypermobility, the female cycle, holistic health, and the pelvic floor, and has allowed her to connect the dots in helping women to more fully understand how to care for themselves. Dr. Britt, hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Hi, Carrie. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Doing good today. So let's start at the beginning. How did you first learn about hypermobility? So looking back, it's been in my life, my whole life. Um, But when I was in PT school, I started connecting the dots and understanding that my body was a little bit different than everyone else's around me. For example, we would do different mobilizations on our body. And when we did the hip one, my hip popped completely out of my joint and then went back into my joint. And all my classmates ran over to try it out on me because they thought that was fascinating. Um, And then, you know, I used to dance growing up. I always had an incredible amount of mobility doing different things in dance. So those things kind of were all connected when I started working in pediatrics and had a patient who had Ehlers-Danlos and um, started researching and then started understanding that I also have that. And that was kind of how I started connecting the dots, you know, retrospectively, so many things started making sense. And ever since then, I've been diving deeper and deeper. Fascinating. Thanks for sharing that story. And it's, it's so common to hear how people learn about Ehlers-Danlos from other patients. That in fact, seems to be the most common way that people (laughs) learn, at least from the people I speak with. You are trained in physical therapy, as we discuss, and have a lot of experience working with hypermobile individuals. What do you see as the biggest challenges in treating this population? I think one of the biggest challenges is the diverse presentation. So it is a spectrum, and everyone has different frustrations that they deal with. Uh, we can look at a list of you know common comorbidities and things that are associated with it. But within that list, some people deal with some things more and some things less. So the challenge I see, and it's also part of what I love about working with this population, is figuring out all the puzzle pieces for them and how they all fit together. And looking at it through that lens, looking at their health holistically through the lens of hypermobility is a challenge because none of us are the exact same. And I love that challenge, but it definitely is, you know, something that it's not a straight and narrow path ever. Absolutely. That's very consistent with what I've heard from talking with hypermobile people and reading about it. I'm always struck by the immense amount of commonality, sort of the common threads that run through the hypermobile population, but also the extraordinary variety of how that manifests in individuals as well. 
Yes, I think um, we can all relate to each other because we've all gone gone through similar things. Mm-hmm. But you're right, there's this thread that's woven between all of us. But some of us experience one area more than the other. And I think that's fascinating because that just shows you how powerful our environment is, mm-hmm. experiences we've had in life, like those are all coming into play and are a part of our hypermobile puzzle. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems like a significant percentage of the people I've spoken with, people who are really sort of suffering or struggling with particular symptoms, have experienced either a traumatic injury or an illness that kind of precipitated their downward spiral, uh, so to speak. Is that something that you've noticed as well, or kind of extreme variation when it comes to what causes symptoms to flare? No, I I 1000% have noticed that. Um, That's something I put at the forefront of my care is kind of understanding that stress bucket for my patients because we do have threshold levels in our bodies. Our goal, our body's goal is for us to stay in homeostasis. And when something's introduced to our system and our system specifically because having a connective tissue disorder alone means that our body is working harder throughout the day, right? So our threshold levels are a little bit, are reached a little bit easier because we're already working at that higher threshold based off of our genetics alone. Um, So when something is introduced that is considered traumatic or uh, more extreme for our system, that can be when our symptoms manifest in a way we haven't experienced before. And then climbing out of that situation, out of that hole can be really tricky. And that's hopefully where care comes in, working with a provider that knows how to help with that. Absolutely. And you focus a great deal in your practice in helping people to shift their mindsets and their lifestyles. What is your approach to this process? So I realized when I started in physical therapy, in PT school, the focus is so much on the musculoskeletal system. Obviously, that's the primary part of what we do. But for me personally, I had time and time again, situations where focusing on my musculoskeletal system wasn't enough to get me out of pain, to get me out of fatigue, to get me out of these holes that I was in. And I realized I had to expand my knowledge in order to help someone. And a huge part of that are those lifestyle and mindset shifts. So in order to have wellness, we have to have these foundational pieces in place. And there's so much research out there on the power of our mindset and what that does for example, our hormonal fluctuations or our neurotransmitters and keeping those balanced. And we are a whole system and everything works together. So we can't just look at one aspect of our health, especially with hypermobility and HEDS and all the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. We have to consider the whole human. And so for me, mindset was a foundational piece of caring for myself and then, you know, the clients I ended up working with. Lifestyle is foundational in that that is our day-to-day and how we support our bodies. So something like sleep for me is a non-negotiable and is at the top of the list when it comes to what I call self-care. I don't think self-care is really like this glorified thing. I think it's just like the foundation of 
tuning into ourselves and what we need. Lifestyle shifts have to be a part of the puzzle when it comes to caring for our bodies. Absolutely. And I think it's so great that you focus on the whole person and not just the hypermobile component. I think sometimes the idea that we're people first can get lost in all of this because there's so much we have to deal with that stems from the the connective tissue difference. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we're definitely people too and people first. And your knowledge of the pelvic floor is particularly fascinating as this is an issue with many hypermobile people and often doesn't get as much attention as the joint issues or some of the other co-occurring conditions. Can you give us a bit of an overview of how the pelvic floor functions when it's healthy and what kind of issues you see in hypermobile individuals? Yeah, of course. So ideally, a healthy pelvic floor, um, we're able to maintain control of bowel and bladder um, at all times. And outside of illness, obviously, we're able to experience daily functioning without discomfort. We're able to experience um, sexual encounters without discomfort. And the ideal pelvic floor health is not having pain, not having incontinence, and being able to tune into it, having an awareness of the pelvic floor, meaning our mind is mapped to its presence in our body. The issues that I do commonly see are the opposite of that. So bowel and bladder dysfunction is very common in hypermobility. I would say bladder more commonly with incontinence, uh, stress incontinence, urge incontinence. And really the beautiful thing about incontinence is when we do establish that mind-body connection between our brain understanding our pelvic floor and how it needs to function, a lot of symptoms do improve. Bowel often comes along with gut dysfunction, and so those can go hand in hand. But again, having an increased awareness of the pelvic floor, how it needs to function, and the connection there is really, really helpful. And then pain. I mean, the pelvis is the keystone of our body, right? It connects the upper body to the lower body. It it does a lot of stabilization and it carries a lot of brunt if other parts of our body aren't strong enough to help support it. And so in hypermobility, um, strength is the antidote to a lot of things. But the difficult part is understanding how to strengthen in a way that doesn't overwhelm our system. So I always start with clients on a more foundational level of building our stabilizing muscles, the small muscles that are protecting our joints. And the pelvis is like one of the primary focuses because it is such a keystone in our body. And when it's not functioning well as a protective mechanism, we can experience pain because it will get tight and stay tight to help carry the load um, of our upper body, of our lower body. And so when that happens and it's in a hypertonic state where it's chronically tight, any sort of input will be seen as painful. And so we have to learn how to then calm it down. um, And that incorporates a lot of nervous system work, but also strengthening around the pelvic floor, the muscles surrounding above and below to help take some of the load off of the pelvic floor. That makes a lot of sense. And thank you for that overview. Are there general things that people with hypermobility conditions can be doing sort of preemptively to avoid pelvic floor dysfunction, or is it completely individual? No, there definitely are 
definitely are foundational pieces that I almost always start with, with a lot of my patients and clients. Breathwork is one of the biggest components because every time we take in a breath, the diaphragm below our lungs drops down. And if you think of our abdominal cavity as kind of like a vacuum system, when the diaphragm drops at the top, the pelvic floor in connection drops at the bottom. And when we breathe out, the vacuum of air leaving and our diaphragm pulling back up allows for our pelvic floor to naturally contract and pull back up. Um, So where a lot of dysfunction occurs is in simple things like lifting a box throughout the day, something lifting something off the floor, lifting up a basket of laundry, or laughing with a friend. If we're not incorporating a successful breath pattern in these situations, and we already have incontinence, then we experience these symptoms that seem out of our control. But really, the simplest shift in this situation is to start to tune into the coordination of our breath with our diaphragm and pelvic floor. And so I always start with clients working on, are they moving together or are they moving dysfunctionally? And so function first is one of my primary approaches. And this simple task is closing our eyes, taking deep breaths in and out and seeing if they can feel their pelvic floor drop and relax on the in-breath, contract and rise on the up-breath. If they can't feel it from just a seated, eyes-closed perspective, uh, then I teach internal work. Uh, I do see a lot of my pelvic floor clients virtually, which some people are so confused by, but what I love about that is they through me educating and communicating with them are able to tune into their body because they have to, because we're working virtually. Um, So just an internal feel of the pelvic floor with breath, you can feel it contracting and relaxing. And that creates a really strong connection in the mind with controlling the pelvic floor with breath. And breath is really what will lead to incontinence in a lot of those moments. That's fascinating. And it's great to know that there are great benefits of doing that kind of basic breath work and these things that we hear about a lot, but don't necessarily get the kind of detailed understanding of the the physical benefits that that can bring. Like a lot of the focus is on the mind when it comes to those kind of things, but it's always interesting to explore that connection. And one of the other things that you're very interested in is this notion of cyclical living and its role in health. First, can you give us an overview of what cyclical living is? Yeah, of course. So we live within cycles uh, every day. So the 24-hour circadian cycle is the sun, obviously. And then we have yearly cycles with the seasons. But within women's health, within our body, we have our monthly cycles. So we have hormonal menstrual cycle that, you know, on average is 28 to 35 days. And within that cycle, um, there's ebbs and flows of different hormones that impact our energy. So I use that to allow bodies to shift or to teach my clients to tune in to their body shifting. And then that allows them to know when the best time is to rest, when the best time is maybe they have a little more energy, they can give a little more push and help support their body even better. That's fascinating. Let's break down a little bit about these seasonal shifts, because that's certainly something I experienced and that I've heard from 
many others of having difficulty uh, in switching seasons. Could you give us a little bit of an overview of the connection with seasonal shifts and your holistic approach to improving health, well-being with hypermobility? Like, what do you see as the role of these seasonal shifts in this context? Yeah, so I used to deal with SAD, seasonal affective disorder, for many years. And so I definitely felt the shift of the seasons, but not in a way that I wanted to, right? Like it wasn't this positive, I'm looking forward to cozy weather winter time. Um, I just felt my whole body being impacted by cold weather and the shifting seasons as many of us can with hypermobility. So I wanted to learn more about how to not let the shifting seasons negatively impact me. How can I make this a positive impact in my life? So when I started looking into the connection between hypermobility and living a cyclical life, I realized that there is so much power in embracing these seasons and the cyclicality of the world around us. We have so much going on in our bodies. And so once I realized that the cold weather seasons were a time for my body to slow down and heal, I felt so much better about what was to come in that season. And I felt I looked forward to it. Whereas in the summer, if you tie that in connection to to our menstrual cycle, winter would time up with menstruation where we have lower energy, but it's we use that time to be more internal and reflective and healing focused. And then the summer would time up or would connect with ovulation where we have more energy and we're more outwardly focused. And so what I realized was starting to live in sync with these cycles from a holistic perspective allowed me to give my body reprieve when it needed reprieve, give my body, you know, the ability to be more socialized and connected and out in the world in the summer. And when I needed that shift to happen, when I needed the reprieve to come or when my clients do, it's there. The next season is coming. And so our body can then pause and or have the ability to be more outward. So it just works really well with hypermobility because we need we can't be in a constant state of go and we can't be in a constant state of rest. If we're in a constant state of go, we burn ourselves out and we have flare-ups. If we're in a constant state of rest, we're not allowing our body to incorporate movement that we need to keep going. So the balance really, really worked well for our community. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's that's a very interesting perspective. Yeah, it can be, especially depending on where, where one lives, the transition to um, colder weather or even the transition to warmer weather can be a time of great sensitivity, but being able to kind of proactively take control and anticipate those phases seems like it, it can be really helpful. Now let's talk a little bit about another topic of importance for you and your practice, and that's women's hormonal cycles. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what role you see hormonal cycles playing uh, in a holistic approach to hypermobility and health? Yeah. So from a hormonal perspective, there are a few very obvious connections to hypermobility. There's different phases of our cycle, ovulation and luteal, when certain hormones can, estrogen can impact the mobility in our joints. So for example, like avoiding activities when estrogen is higher that are fast movements or sharp cuttings, there's been connection between 
girls having more ACL tears or different injuries because there's more ligament laxity at this time of our cycle. So that's like the what got me intrigued in it to start. But from a low hormone, high hormone perspective in our cycle, low hormone being when we're heading towards menstruation and during menstruation, um, our energy stores are more depleted um, because our body is shedding during that time. And it does have an impact on us. So I always communicate to clients um, to take that into consideration. And uh, if they start to experience more an increase in fatigue during this time or an increase in their pain during this time to tune into that and see where they need to be shifting. It goes really well with incorporating it into our work environment, knowing when we're able to push or work on a project or extend ourselves more and knowing when we're not. My goal with clients is to have them have these tools so that they're in tune with their bodies and they know how to keep it in a safe space because we live in this go, go, go world. And that just doesn't work for a hypermobile body. It leads to us having these downward spirals. So understanding how our bodies work and knowing that like, okay, during ovulation, like, yeah, maybe I can put a little more on my plate and not get as run down. That's really helpful. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And you also focus a great deal on the role of sleep, hydration, and digestion and gut issues when it comes to health for hypermobile people. Can you give us your thoughts on these topics that are so important for health, but can be very difficult to find balance with? And maybe let's start with sleep. Yeah. So I always say sleep is my best friend. (laughs) I love sleep so much, but I had to really work on my sleep to have it be a positive experience for me. And one of the first things I did was really shift my sleep environment. And that's one of the first things I have clients work on is creating a space that is their sleep sanctuary. It's that something they look forward to returning to at night. Um, It doesn't have to be anything complex. I think one of the biggest shifts uh, that people definitely give me a little pushback on, but um, is removing the television from our bedrooms. And the reason for this is because blue light has a major impact on our melatonin production. And melatonin, they're learning more and more about how important it is, but it has impacts on our mitochondria. Our mitochondria are our energy systems in our body. And over time, they start to wear down more and more and more when we don't allow melatonin to do what it needs to do by blocking it with blue light exposure at night. And so it's very, you know, neuroprotective, but it also is the initiation of our entire sleep cascade. So they say melatonin is the shotgun that starts sleep. And when it goes off, it communicates to every other sleep hormone and trigger in our body that it's time to start this cascade to go to bed. And when we allow it to do what it needs to do, we get deeper, more restful sleep, more restorative sleep. And with hypermobility, we just can't ignore how important that is for us to allow our bodies to restore what they need to restore, to heal what they need to heal at night and not take that very seriously. 
So, you know, having your sleep sanctuary, the temperature of our home being between 65 and 70 degrees is really good for body temperature regulation throughout the night, which is important. And it just is an essential factor in our health, a foundational, like probably number one for me in taking care of our bodies with hypermobility. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, such a great tip to remove screens um, as far away as possible from sleep, but it can be so hard. But I know there are settings on some devices too that will filter out some of the blue light and there's blue light blocking glasses um, and stuff for times when screens are unavoidable. But that idea of creating a, a sleep sanctuary is definitely a really nice one. Let's move on now to talk about the role of hydration. I guess, what have you found in your practice when it comes to getting adequate hydration? Yeah. So with hypermobility, we go through, run through the hydration in our body faster. So we're more prone to dehydration because our body's functioning to do more just to stay up against gravity and we need optimal hydration. So I think a common assumption is that we should be drinking water, H2O, but in reality, our body needs so much more than H2O. So I call it holistic hydration. Basically, we need to incorporate these different electrolytes in our into our water to make sure that we're giving our body minerals and electrolytes to utilize. So if we're drinking, you know, plain H2O uh, that's been highly filtered, there's nothing left in it for our body to grab onto to utilize as it goes through. Um, so we need the potassium, we need the salt, we need we need those elements to actually stay in balance and hydrated. Um, and one of my favorite hydrating liquids is coconut water. It most closely uh, resembles our blood plasma balance in our body. Uh, some people can't stand the taste, so I often give hydration mixers that have some water in it, some coconut water, tart cherry juice, connecting that back to sleep. Tart cherry juice actually helps to release uh, melatonin at night if you have it about two hours before you go to bed. And yeah, so these hydration mixers throughout the day just help to more holistically hydrate our body and have a, a lot of really positive impact on allowing our energy to stay more stable throughout the day and just hydrating us in a way that's more successful. Absolutely. Those are some great tips. And yeah, I found it so interesting with coconut water. There are some brands that have a really strong flavor to them that I, I really can't stand, but there's a few that are like really delicious and, and seem sort of deeply quenching. Like I think I'm trying to think of the name now, but I wonder if I'm in her actually misremember, but I'll see if I can um, yeah. figure it out. But yeah, it's interesting to somehow to sometimes try to play around a little bit. And just because maybe, you know, one brand really doesn't work for you, there might be another one out there and a good reminder for people to work with their dietitian or, or physician as appropriate to check their baseline levels. But I've definitely spoken to hypermobile people and experienced it myself where we're consuming large amounts of salt through, you know, things like uh, electrolyte supplementation, but still having uh, salt levels on the lower end, um, which is always kind of perplexing to me because I'm like, I feel like I'm having too much salt because we've been <laughs> raised to think that salt is very problematic, but it clearly highlights the the need for balance. And, you know, for someone with 
really high blood pressure or some other issues, you know, it could be harmful. But for someone and for a lot of the hypermobile population, it seems getting more salt than we've been kind of raised to think is appropriate can can definitely make a big difference. Right. Yeah. And I think that also points to the fact that like you talk about what we've been raised to learn, like we aren't we aren't built that way, mm-hmm. you know, like we're built different. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's something I've had to like open up to more is like what I've been learned, what I've been taught and what society says is normal is not our normal. Mm-hmm. And like you said, working with providers, sometimes we're helping to educate them on mm-hmm. differences in our body. Absolutely. Yeah. And as more research comes out, like there was the paper that was released at the end of 2022 last year. So about six months ago, that showed how different types of connective tissue look fundamentally very different from a control group like people without hypermobility compared to people with hypermobility and you know I hope we'll see more research into the kind of physical mechanisms that explain these differences because they can be difficult to communicate when people quote unquote look healthy or or look normal whatever that even means right (laughs) So yeah, let's move on now and talk a little bit about digestion and gut health issues, because that's um, such a big issue for so many hypermobile people. What is your perspective on digestion and gut health? And what do you see kind of your role in working with hypermobile people on those kind of issues? Yeah, this one is huge. And I would say um, my focus here is twofold. So, you know, one of the primary focuses is in helping to support digestion and teaching clients how to support their own digestion in whatever way we can, because we have extra stretchy connective tissue. Our gut is composed of primarily connective tissue. So we just think about the musculoskeletal joint perspective, but connective tissue is global throughout our whole body. One of the biggest things we can do to help our digestion is support it from a from an area where we can support it. So most of our digestive functions are automatic, meaning we don't have any control over them. But there are different phases of digestion that we can have some impact on. The first phase of digestion is called the cephalic phase. And that means it's happening in our brain. So before we even put anything into our mouth, our brain is processing that it's time to eat food. And that starts the cascade of digestion. So we should start to salivate. Our stomach acid should start to produce. But a lot of the times in the world we live in, we are all so busy and we're not consciously tuning into our digestive process. So something as simple as sitting down to eat a meal, having a few moments with your food before you eat it. I always say, let's do the smell test. So let's smell in sight. So let's smell what we can smell on this yummy food we're about to have. And let's see what we can see. And that alone will start the digestive process. And when we allow it to start ahead of time, when digestion is occurring, it is more supported because we didn't rush into it. A really interesting thing I learned recently is that digestion is is the biggest stressor our body goes through in a day. It takes up the most energy, but it's a non-negotiable, right? We can't not eat. We need to fuel our bodies. So we want to be able to fuel it in a way that is supporting it as much as we can. The next phase of digestion is the mechanical phase, so chewing. 
and chewing our food until it becomes almost a liquid when it gets down to our stomach allows for the stomach to have to do so much less work because it's already digested and broken down even more. And so that can just help a lot with people who have hypermobility and deal with irritable bowel syndrome or different digestive frustrations. And so that's the first part. The other part of digestion that can't be ignored is the nervous system involvement. I recently heard a phrase on a podcast where they said, you have to be in a healing state to heal. And I thought, so simple, but makes so much sense. And that's kind of, you know, connected to this because our digestive system and our nervous system are incredibly entwined. If you think about the vagus nerve, it's a direct pathway, a direct highway running to and from the brain and our digestive system. And I personally used to deal with stress gut. So anytime I got stressed, I would have my guts would completely go haywire. And I'd have a lot of digestive issues purely because not what I ate, but being in a stress state. And with hypermobility, because our bodies don't have the input from our joints because our amygdala is larger, we do have a tendency to be in fight or flight more often. And when we're in fight or flight, we can't be in rest and digest. So we have to consider allowing and incorporating things into our routines that help our nervous system calm down, help our body be in rest and digest more to help support digestion and gut health and hopefully improve some of the frustrations we have with them. That makes a lot of sense. And thanks for sharing that overview. And yeah, it makes sense that digestion is so taxing on the body because a lot of people experience increased brain fog, like difficulty concentrating. And it makes sense like so much of blood flow is and and just the body's energy is is directed to that process because it can be very involved. And like you said, things that tax every human body can tax our bodies more because of the way that we're constructed. And so those kind of simple, helpful tips like, you know, sitting down, smelling the food, looking at the food, kind of trying to start that process even before eating is really helpful. And and even things like for me, I know it helps to have more warmer food, like really cold cold food will um, often make me feel really chilled. So, you know, taking stuff out of the fridge a little longer before eating it, uh, like seems to be helpful too. Yeah, a little aside there, you just cued me to, um, if you are dealing with digestive frustrations, soups, cooked soups, warm soups are the easiest for our bodies to digest. So yeah, that's a really great point to eat, to make when we're eating and then we're dealing with digestive issues. Anytime we're eating something raw or cold, it takes more energy to break down. Mm -hmm. So that's a really great point. Mm -hmm. And really common for hypermobile people to have issues with their jaw. It's one of the most common joints. I think jaw, neck, shoulders, and hips seem to be the ones I hear about the most. I'm curious to hear your perception on what the hot button joints are. But when your jaw is really painful and the muscles are in spasm, it can be difficult to chew, especially, you know, raw carrots or something that's really hard. And so getting something cooked or in, into soup form, um, I know can be helpful for me. Right. Yeah. And I always say like when we're trying to work through these frustrations, like what's our entry point? Um, like obviously our goal won't to be to have soup forever, but if that allows our digestion to calm down and allows our jaw to not be in pain, then that's where we start and we slowly progress from there. 
chewing is can be aggravating if we aren't chewing in a way that is supportive, right? So yeah, that's a really great point. And starting in a place where we allow healing to happen and then slowly progressing, that's just how it works for us. We can't rush through things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so much of our modern lifestyle, like the fast food, eating on the go, just not even chewing food properly. So much of that is particularly difficult for many hypermobile people. And I've heard it said that, you know, some people theorize we're like the canaries in the coal mine for modern living, that these things that affect us in this way really affect all or if not all, most humans to some degree, because we're definitely eating and living in a way that's very different than the way our ancestors did. Yeah, our toxic load is very different than theirs. And that has a big impact on anything, everything. But I absolutely love that canary analogy that that's spot on. (laughs) And there are also many, many misconceptions about hypermobility out there that come from a variety of sources. What do you see as the biggest misconceptions from your experience? Well, I would say one of the biggest misconceptions is that it's just a musculoskeletal frustration from someone looking in on the outside who doesn't have anyone in their life with hypermobility, just thinking that we're a little extra bendy and that's it. But the implications of it are, as you know, and everyone listening is so much further reaching than that. It's global. It impacts our whole body. It impacts every system in our body. But I think another big misconception from being on the inside of this world is that we have to like be in this state of frustration with our bodies. One of my biggest goals is for us to learn how to trust our bodies. And I think where that will come is understanding more and more about how hypermobility works. I've noticed within myself and within my clients It is easy to be frustrated with everything that's going on, but I had to shift my perspective to this curiosity mode of, well, yeah, I do function differently than everyone else. So how, how do we problem solve through that? And maybe that just means we show up in this world differently. We have to, you know, set boundaries with ourselves, with the people in our lives, with our work to allow that to occur. But I want our community to start to feel empowered in their bodies and just really like knowing how we tick. And I think there's a lot of power in that. Absolutely. And hopefully with hypermobile people, you know, learning how to set boundaries, learning how their bodies work through great work, like the work that you're doing, you know, it's the hope that the rest of the population will hear the canaries singing too, because these are lessons that, you know, most people can benefit from and things that we're not taught and are sort of seen as so basic, they don't even need teaching like, well, of course, you know what your needs are. If you're thirsty, you drink water. But we we know it's way, way, way more complicated than that and can be really easy to get kind of caught up in the, the flow of life and the demands of modern living and completely forget if not, you know, neglect our basic needs. Yeah. And how beautiful is that? Like you just pointed out the fact that we could be teachers to the rest of the population of the importance of caring for our bodies because we don't have a choice in order to function Mm -hmm. in this world. We have to tune in. We have to be the canaries that are saying, hey, there's, you know, a leak down here, but we're that foundational piece that that can then help others. I, I, I love that. Yeah. And you have a link on your website about five simple tips for hypermobile individuals. 
Uh, first of all, thanks for providing some of your content for free. Accessibility is such a big issue in the community, and a lot of the support out there can be pretty pricey. Can you give us a sneak peek of some of the tips you mentioned in your free resource guide? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we touched on a few. Hydration and cyclical living are two of them. Um, embracing rest, sleep is one. The other is progressive movement, but I think the one, one of my favorite ones, and I'll dive into this one a little bit more now, is understanding our energy distribution. So I always say in our day-to-day, in our life, we have energy givers, energy takers, and energy makers. And we have to understand which ones are impacting us on a day-to-day basis. So our energy takers are going to be those things that are putting increased stress on our body. And that can be anything from a difficult relationship, a situation at work, or the environment we live in if we live in an environment that has unknown mold or things like that. So tuning into our environment is really important, but the energy makers are things that have exponential support on our energy system over time. So I touched on melatonin and its impact on mitochondria and them being the energy systems in our body. Sleep, I consider an energy maker. Movement, I consider an energy maker because long-term it does give us access to more. It increases our resilience. So that, I think, is something when we start to tune into energy distribution and what that looks like day to day for us um, it has a really positive impact on our body awareness and then how we're able to perform in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, that's wonderful. And we'll include links to your resource guide and to your website in the episode notes for anyone that wants to check it out. It's www.bloomembody.com. And we'll include those links in the episode description. Any parting thoughts for our audience today? I would say to believe in your bodies and to know that you can find your rhythm and tuning in to start to feel safe in your body again is so doable. Yes, we may show up a little differently. Uh, We may have to have adjustments, but we are just as capable and I think we're pretty incredible what we're able to endure and still show up in this world as. Agreed. Completely agreed. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Britt, for joining us today and for your work with hypermobile individuals. It's so very much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. Well, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Thanks for joining us. And as always, feel free to reach out at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com if you have questions, feedback, ideas for future episodes, or if you'd like to chat. And a special thanks to the many listeners who have reached out. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you all. See you next time. Bye.